Hi, welcome to the Moments That Matter podcast. I am your host, Laura Escamilla. And I am your co-host, Isaac Escamilla. Last week, I did a presentation to high school students. They were in a summer program, and I had a student after the presentation ask me a question that I really wanted to address in this episode. He wanted to know, as a rising junior, what he needed to do to prepare for college applications. I had three points that I wanted to kind of address with that. A lot of universities open their admission cycles August 1st, and these are usually early action, early decision application openings, but they both carry a deadline of November. We can discuss these differences a little later. But if your child knows the schools they want to apply to, they should be ready to apply by August 1st, entering their senior year. This means high school transcripts and resumes and all the things that go along with their college applications, they all have information that end with junior year. They don't contain the information for senior year because they're done before that. Most year-by-year college planning tells you that junior year should be pre-SATs and looking at your college application requirements and starting college essays and looking at summer programs to kind of beef up the resume. Those are all good things to do. But for me, I really felt the need to tell this student about the things that I've seen firsthand. Here are the three areas I felt really need to be focused on during junior year. I've met a lot of kids as I do these presentations and I talk to students that are just not prepared to apply for college when it comes. And they're not really prepared for scholarships and all of the requirements that those have. First, I'd like to suggest to parents to know your child's schedule for junior year. If they can take dual enrollment courses or AP courses, I want to make sure that they are enrolled in at least two per semester if possible. So the difference between AP and dual enrollment, there's a couple of things that you should know. Advanced placement courses, also known as AP classes, are college-level courses and exams that students take in high school that can serve to benefit college applications and kind of the overall college experience as they get to earn hours with these courses. Dual enrollment courses are also that. However, they're simultaneously enrolled in a college or university while they're in high school. They're college-level courses to earn college credit. Both these routes are college-level courses. And with successful completion of both, they can result in college credit. Fundamentally, the difference between dual enrollment versus AP, I know that working in education, many people favor AP courses over dual enrollment courses? Yes. So AP classes, really what the difference is that um, parents and students usually pick is that um, when in high school, when you're taking these classes, they're weighted. Your GPA is weighted a little heavier if you're taking AP classes over to regular course. AP classes carry the heaviest weight because they're college-level courses. But dual enrollment comes right under that. So usually people pick AP because it has the most weight. However, there's a big difference to it when you're looking at it for college credit. On a high school transcript, that's great. It helps your GPA. You get a little bit more weight behind it. But when it comes to college credit, it's a little trickier. So the difference is that on an AP class, at the end of the year, they have to take an exam. And this exam is scored from one to five. And the student has to take this AP exam. And in order to get college credit, they have to get at least a three, four, five. So if your student takes the class and they test at the end of the year and they end up with a one or a two, 
those scores don't translate to college credit when you're trying to transfer that to a university when you start applying. So that's the biggest difference. Now, with a dual enrollment class, it is also college level. However, it is treated like a normal college course. Whatever they earn in the class is the grade that they earn on their college transcript. So if they get an 80 in the class in high school, it's a B on a college transcript. They earn the college credit. So there is no later exam. There is no specific score. They just earn the credit. This is a little less stressful. I usually look to dual classes if I'm recommending classes. I also wanted to mention that as a scholarship provider, our application also requires that 12 college hours be completed before applying. This would be through AP classes or dual. And again, for AP classes, you have to have a three, four or five for us to count that as college credit. This is another reason I'm bringing it up. Once you're applying to colleges and scholarships, they want to see what college credit you had. Taking the AP class and not doing well on the exam, it'll probably help your high school GPA. But when it comes to college credit, if that's what you're going for, it's a hit or miss. If you don't get that three, four or five, then you're out of luck. A dual enrollment course is a very safe bet because so long as they pass the course, they get credit for the high school course and they also get credit for that the college, college course. level course. So if the goal is obtaining a specific amount of credit hours for the purpose of scholarships or reducing the amount of college classes you're going to have to take at a university or college, right. then dual enrollment seems very straightforward. It is. And the other thing with AP classes is if you take the AP class in the fall of your junior year, The exam isn't until the end of the year. So you have months that went by that you weren't taking the class. You have to study, you have to do additional tutorials so that you can prepare for these exams. So that leaves a big break when it comes to a high school student's concentration on that subject. Yes. And of course, there are students that take AP classes and there are students that score perfect fives, but you really have to know your student and what their study habits are and their abilities are. And as we said, the dual classes, they take the class and if they do well in the class, they get the credit. So there's a little bit of a risk with the AP class. If I take the class in the fall and too much time lapses and I don't keep up with the work or the studies, there's a chance that I might not score what I need to score. Additionally, when you spoke of weight, when we talk about the weight of an AP course versus a dual enrollment course, you're talking about their GPA. So an AP course has more weight on a GPA than a dual enrollment course. It counts for more, correct? Right. So if you're taking um, a history class and you take a regular history class your junior year, you'll earn, let's just for numbers sake, say three points for that class. But if you take the history course and it's AP, you might earn 3.3 points instead of three points. And a dual would be 3.2 points. So there's a slight difference on the weight. Don't quote me on the numbers. Every school's different. But it's that kind of thing. And so when they're averaging out and doing your high school GPA, there's a little bit of weight on it. It does benefit a student, their GPA, to have harder courses. And when you come to both dual and AP classes, they're beneficial not only because you're earning college credit, but when you're applying to colleges, you're also showing them that you're willing to do rigor and you're willing to be challenged. And both are true. And of course, it looks even better if you take the AP class and you take the exam and you get a five, then it's great. But Indeed. again, it, it is hit or miss. You can't, there's no guarantee. With a dual class, if you do the work and you pass it, you get the college credit. The opportunity that you have with an AP course is because of that weight, the opportunity to increase your rank. If your motivation is class ranking, whatever percent that you're shooting for, then- right. You want to prepare yourself 
as best as possible. And that's the route, an AP course, because it's just a little bit more weight. Right. Again, you have to decide what your student is able to do and what their motivation is. Is there motivation to earn college credit or is there motivation to have a higher ranking? If you're willing to just take the course and get that higher ranking because you do well in the class and take the chance you don't earn the college credit later and you're fine with that, then that's okay too. But the way I'm looking at it is from our scholarship and having to complete college hours before you apply. If you don't get that score, you're not going to get that college credit that you need to reflect on these scholarship applications. So dual enrollment is a very safe bet and it's very pragmatic because you will get that college credit so long as you pass the course. And it's still weighted. It's just not as much. Not quite as much, but pretty close. There is a barrier to entry too on both of these. So with an AP class, it has to be recommended by your counselor that you can take it. Not every junior can take these classes. You have to be in good standing at the school and show that you are able to take the course load because they are hard courses. And with a dual class in Texas, a TSI test, they have to take that and do well in it in order to enroll in these dual classes. Essentially, the TSI is an entry exam for community colleges and for colleges. These are required. And usually the high school asks students to take the TSI their sophomore year for this purpose so they know if they can take dual enrollment. It usually already happens as part of the process. But in both cases, it has to be counselor approved. Also, it's widely believed that these dual enrollment classes, that they have to go to an early college and these other type of specialized high schools. But that really isn't the case. There's a lot of classes available at a regular everyday high school um, that these college hours can be earned. Our kids both did dual enrollment classes and our son went in with 30 college hours to Baylor. However, he had one history class that he took AP and he didn't score well on the exam. So he didn't get that college credit. So he has to retake it in college. There are some subjects that usually either a dual or AP class are really hard to transfer over. And those are usually things like calculus and these really hard math courses that the university wants you to take at their school. But for the most part, Lucas got his English credit and government and those type of dual classes that he took. And those are 30 hours that we don't have to pay for Indeed. in college. And as that relates to junior year, we need to be very cognizant of our students' schedule. Right. As far as dual or AP or what they're going to be taking so they can maximize their output because this is the year that counts the most, right? Right. And you don't want them to take every course like this, maybe two each semester and then fall of their senior year. They can take a few also. My scholarship, you apply January of your senior year. So you have three semesters from there to take these classes. But you definitely don't want to get to senior year and figure out that you have no dual classes or no AP courses and start trying to make it up then. That's why it's so important that you start this process beginning of the year. We're now in July. You want to figure out what your student's schedule is if they are going into their junior year right now. With that, my next suggestion is knowing their class rank. In the fall of their junior year, usually around October, kids get their ranking and get a little card from the counselor's office. If this isn't the case at a student's school, they should go visit with their counselor. But from there, you need to know their ranking and you want to kind of measure their success. So whatever percentage they are in their class, if they're number 50 out of 300, you want to know that percentage. And you want to figure out early on in the year if they need to keep that up and maintain where they're at or if they need to improve. And the reason I bring this up is because in Texas, Texas law offers automatic admission to public colleges and universities. 
at Texas colleges and universities, the law requires that 90% of first-year students be in state residence. And of those, 75% are automatic admit. So you want to know where you fall in that if you're going to a Texas college or university. And you want to know the requirements for the school that you're going to your junior year. And you want to know if you meet that already or if you have to work harder or if you're maintaining that. For example, the University of Texas at Austin, they offer automatic admission for top 6% of freshman applicants from Texas high schools. I remember that it used to be much higher back when I was in high school. Right. 10%. Right. You know, Those requirements. a long, long time ago. Yeah, it's been a little while, <laughs> but the requirements, they're getting a little... A little more rigorous, right. And Texas A&M, another large university in the state, their admission requirements state that the student must rank in the top 10% of graduating class on or before the application deadline. We go back to if they're applying and the deadline is November in their senior year, everything weighs on what they did their junior, their junior year. year. So you want to know where you stand early in your junior year so you know where you have to get. Um, Texas Tech is also automatic admission for a top 10%. And at most of these schools, usually if you're not that percentage, there are holistic review processes and they can also take into consideration ACT and SAT scores if maybe you're just not the best student in class, but you're amazing and you're an amazing test taker and your scores are wonderful. They will look at that too. But what's better at the start of junior year, you know where you stand. When we talk about the ACT and the SAT, I know that for admission, ACT and SAT, for some universities and colleges is optional. That does not help the student when it comes to merit-based scholarships, correct? Right. So for one, we want to start a spreadsheet of all the schools that your child is looking at, all the colleges, universities, wherever they are. And first, you want to start tracking automatic admission at that school if it's a Texas school. And that way you can start figuring out where you're at. The final thing that I would suggest is that parents start registering their kids in these ACT and SAT exams and have them start in the fall of their junior year. And I say that not because you want to start freaking out and stressing out about this, but quite the opposite. Both ACT and SATs offer seven test dates throughout the year. So if you sign up for the first one and they don't do well, you want to give them the opportunity to keep retaking that test, they, they can keep taking it. And most universities take the highest score. So you don't have to really worry about that. You don't have to submit scores. You just need to take the exam and see where you lie and then have them retake it if they want. And a lot of universities also super score. They take the highest score from each section. That's really important. But as you were mentioning, because a lot of schools are transitioning to test optionals, what they call it, where they're not asking for your ACT or SAT scores to be admitted, you really don't want to fall into making the mistake of not sending scores if they're good scores because a lot of universities put merit aid based on these scores. If your child can study and take one of these, and if not both of these, they should. And when we talk about merit aid, that's, those are all scholarships and grant money that's awarded to the student. That's not need-based. It's not based on their financial need. It's all based on academics. And for the most part, all these schools that do offer merit aid, they base it on ACT and SAT scores. So even though they don't need it for admissions, there are additional considerations for merit aid at that school. Well, that's very important because they can get in without an ACT or SAT score. Right. But 
they may not be able to afford to go there if they haven't produced a score that's worthy of a merit scholarship. Right. And that was very big for our kids. Both our kids went to Baylor and or are at Baylor and we can't afford them to just go to Baylor without any help. We needed them to earn a merit scholarship and we pushed them and got on them about retaking these ACT exams over and over. And luckily it only took twice to get the scores we needed to get merit aid. But the schools publish this information and it's all public information on what they use to provide this merit aid. And our kids needed to earn merit academic scholarships to get us to a point where we could afford them to go to this school. That's important to know from the start. And again, you don't want your kid um, having to take these exams at the end of their junior year and then they're worried they didn't get the score they needed and they want to apply in August or September and there really isn't a window to retake these exams. So you want to start junior year and you want to start giving them that opportunity to reduce the stress later. And if they get the score they need, then they don't have to worry about it again. So what do you suggest parents or guardians do when it comes to organizing this bulk of information, the list of schools, what's required, what kind of merit scholarships are offered, cost of attendance, things of that nature? How do parents or guardians organize this? Right. So we did. How did we do it? We, we did. I did oh, a I. spreadsheet and our spreadsheet, we started with listing the schools that had the major that our, our kids were looking for. Certainly. We weren't looking for schools that are just like, oh, I really want to go here because I want to go here. We want to make sure that they provide the academics that our kids wanted and needed for the program they wanted. And then from there, start making a list of what they call reach schools that are dream schools that you don't know 100% you can get into, but you want to try. Then start putting down if they have automatic admission, if it's a state school, if They don't if it's a holistic process, the things that you have to do, the cost of attendance there and cost of attendance is not just their tuition, it's room and board and all the other expenses that go into them being at that school. And you want to start keeping track of all this and you want to keep track of their application deadlines of when they open and their essays. And it's really just a spreadsheet and you have to make it comparable to the student. You don't want to just provide every single school in the area. Right. It should be a short, achievable Tailored list. to the student, right. 10, 12 schools and add schools that you know for sure your kid can get into because you know their ranking and you know their automatic admission. And we know that this is, they're a shoe in They're going to get automatic admission and it's good and we're good. And you want them to apply to those schools. You want them to have a plan. If the reach school doesn't work out, if financially you can't afford it or they don't get in, you want there to be a plan. And an honest discussion with your student, diving into where they want to go and what they want to major in and right. a plan A, a plan B and plan C and why. Right. But that's also an honest conversation about your scores and your ranking and this is what you're doing and what you need to do to get there. And if you start this process entering junior year, then they have the year to figure it out and prepare and do better and finalize all those things that they want. So you don't want to wait till right before their senior year to figure this out. You really want to go into junior year prepared for all of these three aspects. And just a little bit about the exams, I want to also touch on the fact that I know when you're signing up, they ask you where you want to send these scores. I would advise that scores not be sent automatically. You want to see those scores before they go to the school. And you want the opportunity to decide for yourself if that's a score worth sending. I didn't know that we could do that. 
That yeah. is useful. It kind of makes you feel in the application process like you have to select that, but you don't. You don't have to add that. And there's also another aspect of the ACTs where they ask you for all this information to put in all the classes you've taken. We spent a lot of time doing it the first time around, and it's not necessary. You don't need it to take the exam. And it just really causes other schools to start reaching out and a bunch of junk mail and that kind of stuff. It's not really necessary. And this is through the, the ACT. And the other piece of advice I'd give is to have your kid, your child, set up an email address that is specifically for admissions and specifically for college applications and get that name properly, you know, John Doe 2023 kind of Gmail address and just make sure that it's professional and that it's all related to this and they can share the credentials with their parents or whoever's helping them. And that way it's only that and they don't miss something. And also it's a professional email address. Right. I know as a scholarship provider, I'm reviewing application and it's like unicorn puffy too. And it just doesn't look professional. It takes a few minutes to set up a proper email account. And just as you're going through the process, provide this email and keep everything together. And then when you're done and you get in and you get your college school address, close it. You don't need it anymore. And it's not messed with your personal email. Sure. But a professional email address right. can stay with you for a very long time as right. you apply yes, for jobs and right. even different universities along the way. And it's a minor thing. It does help keep all the information in one area to start with the process. Absolutely, of course. And they may themselves be asked to be references for their peers or for others. And you definitely don't want to have an email address that you right. chose when you were in junior high. Right, right. And, you know, when you're in junior high, you're not really thinking about Right. Those types of things. You want something cool that sticks with you. Understood. Those are the three things that I would really suggest. And what I suggested to this student when I talked to him, very concerned about what he needs to do so that he's ready for college. And it's that. It's make sure you're taking these exams. Make sure you're taking dual classes or AP tests and you're doing well and that you're doing this early on your junior year and you know what your rank is. And when I did this presentation, a lot of students didn't realize that Texas had automatic admission and you want this information to be known and you should keep track of it and you should know where you stand in addition to whatever your counselor is telling you. Right. These so are additional three tips that I would give. Keep track of the test dates. Make mm -hmm. sure you give yourself an opportunity to take the tests again if you need to. Right. And put everything down somewhere, spreadsheet, document, anything, right. just to keep track of where sure. you are and what the school requirements may be. Right. And I also want to take a minute to circle back. I talked about early decision and early action applications. And the reason I want to talk about that is because usually these two types of applications for college open August um, before your senior year even starts and they deadline in November. So I just wanted to give a little information on what those two mean. And they're very simple, but also complicated. So early decision, when you apply early decision, that's a binding application, which means your student is applying to the school saying, I know 100% I want to be there. And if you're accepted, you're going to attend there. And if their financial aid package looks right, other than that, you're kind of um, bound to go to that school. For a lot of students that know exactly what they want to be doing, you want to be sure that students understand that that is a binding decision. And the benefit of doing that, aside from the fact that you know that this is the school you want to go to, is that you usually find out 
if you are accepted by December of that same year. So you find out before the regular admissions. And then there's early action, which is kind of the same thing, but it is not binding. So you're telling the school, I want to go here looking at a couple of other schools, but if I get in, I'm going to strongly consider it. You find out a little later than early decision. You find out in January, February of your senior year, but you're also expressing interest to the school. And that application also opens August 1, and it also deadlines in November. So you're telling school, I know I want to go there. And you find out a little later than early decision, but you also want to express your interest. And on both of these, the schools do keep track of how you're applying. And a lot of times, a lot of the students that are admitted are through these processes because they want the students who absolutely know they want to go there. So these are the reasons you consider this and you don't want to just do rolling admissions unless you're applying to a school that is a safety school or a school that is not a priority, but you would go there if you got a really good offer. You do regular rolling admissions for those. You should know that the early action and early decision open August before senior year. Again, the information you need to fill out these applications is all the stuff from junior year. Comes from the junior year. Right. There is no time to make up these things once senior year starts. You want to be ready to go. Great. So if I apply as a student for early decision, I cannot do early action or is it the other way around? If I do early action, that means I can't do early decision. If you do early decision at one school, you cannot apply early decision or early action anywhere else. You have to do regular rolling admissions at one other schools. And one only. If you apply early decision at a school and you get accepted there, you agree to withdraw all your applications from other schools because you've already told them that I'm going to go there. And early action, you, can, you cannot apply early action anywhere else, but you can continue the process and you don't have to withdraw anywhere else. And like I said, it's non-binding. Early action is non-binding. You're telling the school that I am looking elsewhere, You're but I really want to go here. And from there, if you get accepted, you can say, I decided not to come here and just you have your other applications available. Great. So just a few tips for junior year. I hope this helped. Again, you want to be ready. You don't want to be surprised and you don't want to get to the start of senior year, which will come quickly and realize that you weren't prepared and you didn't have all the information. Thank you for joining us and please keep listening to us every Saturday as we put out new episodes and more tips for you.